You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Turn to the book of John, chapter 5. Book of John, chapter 5. And we will read together, beginning at verse 31. And I just want you to see as we're reading through the reference to testimony and testifying and witnesses in this passage to remind yourself again of the emphasis of this last half of chapter 5. Verse 31, If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony which I receive is not from man. But I say these things so that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me, that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that in your word you have revealed all that we need to know and to understand about you. We trust again, Father, that as we gather together around your word, that this may be the central act of our worship this morning, that we might hear from you and we might behold the wonderful Savior in the text of Scripture. Thank you for such a sure word and such a reliable witness and testimony of our Savior. We ask, O Spirit of God, that you would break the word of God to us this morning that having inspired this text, that you might illuminate it to our hearts and minds, and that together we might be um, instructed and edified and equipped as we behold in your word our Savior. We pray that you'd be glorified through this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have ever had maybe the fortune or the misfortune of being in a courtroom setting and watching the drama unfold in a court of law, then you are well aware that one of the key things that a prosecuting attorney or a defense attorney tries to do is to line up reliable witnesses and then to get those reliable witnesses to testify in a certain order. And you don't even actually need to be in a courtroom to see this unfold. You could just behold it on a television show or a courtroom drama show like Matlock, for instance. And maybe I'm dating myself by referring to Matlock. But I don't even know what's on today. But remember Matlock and sometimes the, the whole drama of the courtroom would revolve around having not only the right witnesses, reliable, credible witnesses, but presenting them in a certain order to build your case, to craft your defense or to craft your prosecution of an individual. 
And that is exactly what Jesus does in John chapter 5. He lays out for us four witnesses, and we've looked at two of them. Jesus lays out these four witnesses or presents these four witnesses. They're given in a certain order. There is a logical flow to them. There is a structured flow to them. In fact, one of the witnesses leads rather logically into the next witness as he sort of builds his case, and he presents them in an ascending order of importance and um, and really strength of witness. He begins with his weakest witness, John the Baptist. Now, I'm not trying to disparage John the Baptist at all, but Jesus says, I have a, a witness that's even weightier than John, and he gives the miracles, and then he goes on to present the Father, who's even weightier than the miracles and John, and then he ends with what is the Father's greatest, most ironclad, purest, most trustworthy, best witness that the Father has given, which is the Scriptures themselves. And so Jesus lays out four witnesses, gives, us, gives them to us, and puts them out in a very logical and, and a very ascending order. First, John the Baptist, then the works, and then the Father, and then the the best witness, the the coup de grace. Is that the right word? I don't know. I don't speak French, and I barely speak English. The coup de grace, the last sort of witness at the end, which seals it all up. And that is sort of his trump card. He drops that right at the very end and spends the most amount of time speaking of the witness of the Scriptures to the Son. Some have suggested that this... um, the dialogue that we're looking at, that we've been calling the Divine Son Discourse at the last half of chapter 5, that this was presented before a formal council because it kind of bears the marks of a formal defense. It has certain elements to it that caused some people to suggest that this was given before a council of the Pharisees, maybe the Sanhedrin. There seems to be a lapse of time between verse 17 when Jesus said, the Father's working until now and I have been working. Verse 18 says, hearing that, they started to persecute him even more intensely And to that, Jesus answered in verse 19. Ultimately, we really don't know the forum in which Jesus spoke the words, but the the last half of chapter 5, this whole discourse, has a certain flavor to it, a certain feel to it. It feels like a formal defense. The first half of it, he lays out his claims. I'm the Son of God. I do all that the Father does. Everything the Father does, He shows to me, and I do them. I have authority to raise the dead, and I raise whomever I will. I have authority to judge all men. At the end of time, I will say the words, and all men will come out of the tombs and stand before me and depart, some to a resurrection of life, some to a resurrection of judgment. Those are amazing claims, astronomical claims. And then we say, well, what is the proof of this? What proof can you give that these things are true? And that's why the last half of the testimony is Jesus calling on these witnesses, these testimonies that bear witness to these claims. So there is sort of a flavor. And I, look, I don't know if it's true or not, but I can picture in my mind's eye Jesus standing in front of a group of Pharisees. Let's say the Sanhedrin, 70 of them, and making these claims. And then you're going to see today and next week and the following weeks how he begins to indict them for their hard-heartedness and their unbelief. Now, whether it was a formal defense before a council, before the Sanhedrin, or whether this is just in the temple grounds in front of a a half a dozen or a dozen Pharisees, Jesus gives them a blistering condemnation of their heart and their unbelief in him. The third witness that he calls, we've looked at the witness of of John the Baptist, we've looked at the witness of the works, the miracles that the Father gave him to do, and now the third witness that Jesus calls on is the witness of the Father. Now, if you're going to call upon a witness... Is there any witness more credible than the Father? More reliable, more trustworthy, more ironclad? That's unimpeachable witness. That is the most credible of all witnesses. 
The very fact that Jesus would call upon the witness of the Father is testimony to the fact that He is something special. That is, Jesus is something special. I want you to imagine that I were to say to you, do you want evidence of something? The Father in heaven has testified concerning me. Now, if I say that, what do you think of me? Who do you think you are? That the Father in heaven would actually say something concerning you as a witness before men. See, sometimes people say, Jesus never claimed to be divine. He never claimed to be anything special. He just claimed to be a teacher from Galilee who went about teaching on the law of God. That doesn't even sound believable when you take some of Jesus' own words, His claims, and put them in the mouths of a normal, ordinary human being. And you have to say to yourself, He's either God or He's blaspheming. He's either God or He's crazy. He must be God. To call upon the Father as His witness, this is an ironclad, this is a, this is a, a reliable, credible testimony because the God cannot lie and He cannot be misled about anything and all that God can speak is the truth. So He calls upon the Father as His witness. Read verses 37 and 38 with me. And the Father who sent me, He has testified of me. You have neither heard His voice at any time nor seen His form. You do not have His word abiding in you for you do not believe Him whom He sent. This is the Father's testimony. Now, this is not the first time that Jesus has mentioned the testimony of the Father. He did it up in verse 32 when He introduced these witnesses. There is another who testifies of Me, and I know that the testimony which He gives about Me is true. And I mentioned to you then, it's not John the Baptist that He's talking about, but God the Father. And now He comes back to the Father, but this is not the first time in this whole discourse that He has spoken of the Father. If you go back to verse 17, He mentions that the Father has been working until now, and I have been working. And then this entire discourse is about the relationship of the Father to the Son. And I won't read it for you now and point it out, but you can go back and read beginning at verse 17, and you can see reference after reference after reference to the Father and the Father's relationship to the Son. So now, Jesus basically uh, sets forth His third witness, the Father, and it is exactly what we would expect. Because listen, if the Son was sent by the Father, and if the Son does the works of the Father, And if it is true that the Father has committed to the Son everything, the resurrection of men, the giving of eternal life, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection to life and to judgment at the end of time, if it is true that we saw in chapter 3 that all that the Father has has been committed to the Son, and the Father doesn't judge anybody, but He's given all of that to the Son, and if it is true that the only way to honor the Father is to honor the Son, and to dishonor the Son is to dishonor the Father, if God has vouchsafed His eternal glory and the vindication of His name to this one person, the Divine Son, then you and I would expect that the Father Himself would bear witness to that, wouldn't we not? If the Father has given all of this to the Son, then in some way at some time, the Father Himself has testified, look, all of this I have given to the Son, and this is my Son. And this is what my son will look like. Now hear him. If the only way to the father is through the son, then certainly the father would have said this to us. He would have revealed this to us. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. His most reliable witness so far is not John the Baptist, and it's not the works that he has given. It is what the father has said concerning the son. We're going to look at two things. First, that they had received the witness of the father. And second, that they had rejected the witness of the father. They had received it, and they had rejected it. They had received it at the beginning of verse 37. Jesus says, and the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. Now here's the question. When and how and where and in what way had the Father testified of the Son? 
if the Father had borne witness to the Son, when was that? How did He do that? Where would we find that? What testimony is Jesus speaking of? What is He talking about when He says that the Father has done this? In what way has the Father testified of the Son? The Father who sent me, He has testified of me. Now there are a couple different things that have been suggested, and I'll give them to you. It could be one or bowl, two or any of the three things that I'm going to give you. Some have suggested that the testimony that's being spoken of here by Jesus was the audible testimony at his baptism and his transfiguration. You remember the baptism when the Spirit descended upon him? Uh, when Jesus came up out of the water, that's first, he came up out of the water, <clears throat> immersion. He came up out of the water, and the heavens opened, and the Spirit descended upon him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Someone said, that's the testimony that Jesus is referencing. Or second, at his transfiguration, when Peter, James, and John went up on the mountain and they got a kingdom preview glory of the Son as he was transfigured before them. And they saw that. And they saw Moses and Elijah and the Father speaking with Jesus. Or the Father was speaking there. Moses and Elijah were speaking with Jesus. And then Peter, in sort of a, a, a rambling mistake, said, Lord, we ought to build three tabernacles, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for you. And then a voice from heaven came and said, This is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Listen to him. As some have suggested that it's those two that Jesus is referencing here. The problem with that is that at the baptism, it may well have only been Jesus and John the Baptist and maybe a few people around who actually heard and understood that voice that it came from heaven. There's no indication that everybody present at the baptism of Jesus was privy to that audible testimony. Second, at the transfiguration, it was only Peter, James, and John who heard that and not the Pharisees being addressed here. And in John chapter 5, what it seems Jesus is doing is pointing to testimony that they were responsible to know about and to have heard. So I don't think it's necessarily the audible testimony of the bapt at the baptism and the transfiguration. So is there a second option? There is. Not just the audible testimony, but some have suggested that maybe what's being referenced here by Jesus is the inner testimony of the Spirit in the hearts of those who believe. It's true that when we come to Christ and the Spirit has drawn us and illuminated our eyes and opened them up and given us the faith to believe and granted us repentance and done the work of regeneration, when the Spirit has done that, it is true that God's Spirit dwells in us and that we have the witness of God in ourselves and He testifies to us that we are the children of God. Listen to 1 John chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5, beginning at verse 9. You don't have to turn there, but I want you to listen to this as I read it. And listen to the parallels between what we're hearing in John 5 and what we read in John, 1 John chapter 5. Now keep in mind the similarities here, not chapters 5 and 1 John and chapter 5 and John, but that we have here the same author that's, that's being the same, both of these. John, 1 John chapter 5, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. Right? See the parallel between the testimony of men, John the Baptist, the testimony of God being greater than John the Baptist. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his Son. Boy, it sounds a lot like what we're reading in John chapter 5, doesn't it? The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. And he who has the Son has the life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Now you notice the, the parallel subjects, life and death and having the life and receiving the Son in order to get the life and the Father testifying and giving the greatest testimony. And where is that testimony to be found? John says, First John chapter 5, it's within us. It's within the child of God. Now if this is what John means, and I'm not sure that it is, it might be, if this is what John means, 
then it is true that the gospel itself is, is self-authenticating. Do you know what we mean when we say the gospel is self-authenticating? If you want proof that Jesus Christ is God and that by believing in Him, repenting of your sin, that you will have life in His name and that He will give you eternal life and the Spirit of God will come to dwell in you and you will receive this new life based upon faith in Christ. If you want proof of that, then humble yourselves, bow the knee, repent of your sin and trust Christ for salvation and you will find that it is true. You will find that it is true. Because the gospel is self-authenticating. You want proof that the gospel is true? Repent of your sin and trust Christ, and you will know and you will see and you will experience that it is indeed true. Is that what John is talking about? Jesus is talking about in John 5. That the testimony is that testimony inside of us, the inner, subjective, but listen, very real testimony that God gives concerning His Son to those who believe. It might be, but the problem that I would have with that is that the testimony that Jesus references in John 5 should be something that these Pharisees had seen and heard and had rejected, right? It couldn't have been the inner testimony because that was only available to those who had believed and the Pharisees had not. So it seems that what Jesus is referencing here is testimony that they had seen, they had heard, and they had turned from and rejected. What testimony is it that God has given that the Pharisees had hardened themselves to and rejected on the face of it? I think the clue is in the very context that we're looking at. Verse 38, you do not have his word abiding in you. Then you pick it up in verse 39, you see that Jesus goes into what subject? The witness of the scriptures. How is it that God has spoken concerning his son? Through the Old Testament texts. All of the sacrifices and all of the feasts and all of the psalms and Psalm 22 about the crucifixion and Psalm 23 about the Good Shepherd and Psalm 24 about the coming of the Messiah and Isaiah 53 in the book of Daniel chapter 12 and passages out of the book of Daniel and Micah about the birth in Bethlehem and being born of a virgin in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Zephaniah and Zechariah, all the, everything, all of the Old Testament scriptures from Genesis all the way to Malachi testified of the coming of the Messiah. God's greatest witness was born in His Word. And I believe that that is the testimony that Jesus is addressing here because it leads most naturally right into what he is going to say to them. The testimony that they had rejected was the more sure word of God. That is the condemnation. And that is why beginning in verse 39, Jesus says, you search the scriptures and in them you think you have eternal life and you've set your hope on Moses. But Moses wrote about me and these bear witness to me and yet you have rejected me and you will not believe because they had turned away from the witness of the Father, and the greatest witness that the Father had given was the witness of Scripture itself. We're going to get into this in the next couple of weeks, but I want you to hear this. The Word of God is more sure, more trustworthy, and more reliable than a voice from heaven, an audible voice that you and I hear. Second Peter chapter 1. The Word of God is the more sure Word. More trustworthy than if I were to hear an audible voice from heaven. That's what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1. Well, they had rejected. They had rejected the more sure word. So, they have received the testimony of God. Now look at how they had rejected the testimony of God. Beginning in verse 37, uh, You have neither heard His voice at any time, nor seen His form. You do not have His word abiding in you, for you do not believe Him whom He has sent. Now what had they done with John the Baptist? They had rejoiced in him for a little while. They perceived him to be a prophet. They called him a prophet, recognized that he was a prophet. But what did they do with his message? They rejected it. And what did they do with the testimony of his works, the miracles that he did? They criticized the miracles. You shouldn't do that on the Sabbath. They attributed them to Satan. He only does this by the works of Beelzebub himself. 
and they tried to kill him for the miracles, but they never could really argue against the miracles, and in the end, they rejected the miracles. And they didn't turn because of the miracles. Now, they rejected John, and they rejected the miracles. If you're following a pattern or seeing a pattern here, what would you expect them to do with the testimony of the Father? They're going to reject that as well. And see, now their condemnation grows with every witness that they reject, every testimony that they deny. And Jesus gives them three indictments. You have not heard his voice at any time. Look at the text. You have not seen his form, and his word does not abide in you. You have not heard his voice, you have not seen his form, and his word does not abide in you. Now we'll look at each one of those three. The first thing, you have not heard his voice at any time. Now, who can you think of from the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, who spoke the word of God and whose voice they should have heard and heard the word of God in that voice? Whose voice? Well, Moses is mentioned in verse 45 and 46. Moses heard the voice of God, right? He heard it in the burning bush. He heard it on the mountain. He heard it from the cloud, the tabernacle. Moses walked with God, spoke with God face to face. Moses heard the voice of God. But you see, here's Jesus' contrast. You're unlike Moses. Moses heard the voice of God, but you people are nothing like him. And here's the other irony. They're also unlike Jesus. Had Jesus heard the voice of God? Verse 30, all that I do I hear, the Father does, the Father shows me all that he does, and everything I hear from the Father, and I judge according to what I hear from the Father. The Son had heard the voice of God. He was in communion with the Father constantly and always. And the Son had heard the voice of God, but these men had not. And see, here's the, here's the audacity of the moment. Here was a group of men who had not heard God's voice at any time. Not even in the text of Scripture, which they should have recognized it. They had not heard God's voice at any time. And they were persecuting and judging a man who had heard the voice of God. That's the that's sort of the twist of the text. You have not heard the voice of God at any time. And the implication is, I have. And yet you're criticizing me. Yet you're persecuting me. Yet you want to kill me and you're rejecting what I said. Now how is it that they should have heard the voice of God? Should they have been listening for a voice from heaven? Should there have been an audible revelation or an audible voice that they were in tune with? Is it that they just weren't spiritual enough to discern the voice of God privately and personally? Or is there some other way in which they should have heard the voice of the Father at some point? There is some other way. They should have heard it in John the Baptist, when John the Baptist preached, right? John the Baptist quoted Scripture and gave a message of repentance. And they rejected that message, and God was speaking through John the Baptist because he was a prophet. And they should have heard the voice of God in the pages of Scripture as they studied them, thinking that in the Scriptures they had eternal life. But they didn't hear the voice of God in Scripture. And here's the irony. They should have heard the voice of God in the voice of Christ who was speaking to them. In John chapter 8, Jesus said, I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and the things I heard from him, these I speak to the world. What is it that Jesus said to the world? Only what he heard from the Father. And all that the Father gave him to say, he said. Now here was God in the flesh, standing in their presence, speaking to them the word of God. And he's saying to them, you have not heard the voice of God. And they had not come to the voice of the shepherd. Why? Because they didn't belong to him, John chapter 10. They didn't belong to him. That's why they didn't hear his voice. They did not hear the voice of God because they were not of his sheep. Neither have you seen his form at any time. That's the second indictment. First, they hadn't heard his voice. Second, they had not seen his form at any time. Now, who had seen the form of God? Well, Moses had, remember? Moses in our context, the chapter, or verse 45 and 46. Moses had seen the form of God. He saw God in the burning bush, or manifestation of God in the burning bush. He saw God in chapter 33 when he just saw the hind parts of the glory, the receding glory of God. 
Moses spoke face to face with God, but Moses had never seen the full unveiled essence of the Father. That's why John says in chapter 1, no one's seen God at any time, but the only begotten God, that is the Son, He has made manifest or revealed the Father. So in the Old Testament, Abraham and Moses and Daniel and Isaiah and Ezekiel and all of them that saw the form of God did not behold the unveiled essence of the Father because nobody has seen the Father. What they did see was a manifestation of the Son, but not the full glory of the Son, for they would have been consumed. Nobody could behold that and live. But what they did see was the veiled manifestation of the glory of God in the Son. And I'm of the conviction that every Old Testament appearance of God, all of them from Genesis to Malachi, every last one of them, was the revelation of the nature of God in the Son. It is the Son who has revealed the Father. None of them saw the Father. What they saw was the second person, pre-incarnate appearances of the second person. Now Moses had seen God, or at least they had seen Christ, and he had seen the veiled glory of God. He had never seen the full glory and, and substance of the Father. But these men, these Pharisees, had never seen God's form at any time. Now what about Jesus? Had Jesus seen the form of God? Oh, he most certainly had, right? He existed in the form of God from all of eternity. And he had seen the Father, and he had seen the Spirit, and he knew of those two persons, and he had uninterrupted eternal communion with the other two members of the Trinity from all of eternity past, never in subjection to them, uh, never a break in the fellowship whatsoever. He had seen and he knew the form of God. Jesus had seen it. And here's the irony. These men who had never seen the form of God were judging the one who was in the flesh the very form of God. Isn't that ironic? They should have seen in Christ the form of God. That's why Jesus said to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Philip. Show us the Father. How is it that you say to us, show us the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Philip. What else is there to show you? Philip should have seen it. These Pharisees should have seen it. But they didn't. The first indictment is they had the voice of Christ speaking to them right there and they did not have ears to hear it. They had the form of God standing right in front of them and they did not have eyes to see it. And the third indictment is that they did not have the Word of God abiding in them. Now Moses would have had the Word of God abiding in them. Moses was a channel through which God spoke. Moses had seen God. But these men were unlike Moses and they had never, ever had the Word of God abiding in them. Now once again, here's the irony. Jesus Christ is in the flesh what? The Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was made flesh, and the Word came and dwelt among us. And here standing in their presence was the culmination, the zenith, the conclusion, the fullness of the manifestation of all of God's revelation. Every last thing in the Old Testament pointed to Him. That's what he's going to say in verse 39 through the end of the chapter. Everything pointed to Him. He was in their presence, the Word of God. And did they have that Word abiding in them? No. So here was a group of men who had never heard God speak, who never seen God's form, and did not have the Word of God abiding in them, judging one who was speaking the Word of God, who was the form of God, and who was himself the incarnation of the Word of God. What a twist that is, huh? Those are three indictments on their heart. Now look at the last phrase. For, Jesus says, you do not believe him whom he sent. For you do not believe him whom he have sent. You haven't heard God's voice at any time, seen God's form at any time. You do not have the Word of God abiding in you. For you do not believe him whom he has sent. Now that phrase can be taken one of two ways. Let me give you the two ways. First, it can be taken in the sense of of, um, sorry, explaining the cause of the three things that preceded it in a causal way. In other words, it is they do not they have not heard the voice of God, they have not seen the form of God, and they do not have the word of God abiding in them because they do not believe whom he has sent. In other words, if they believed the one whom God has sent, then they would hear God's voice 
in Christ and they would see God's form in Christ and they would have the Word of God abiding in them if they were to believe. Or second, the phrase can be taken not in the sense of explaining the cause of what is preceded, but in the sense of giving evidence of what is preceded. In other words, what is the evidence that they had never heard God's voice, seen God's form, or have God's word abiding in them? What is the evidence of that? The evidence is that they had not believed whom God has sent. If they had heard God's voice and seen God's form and had God's word abiding in them, then they would have believed. And the fact that they did not believe is evidence of the first three. Now, is that last phrase describing the cause of what has preceded it or the evidence of what has preceded it? Is their lack of understanding, hearing, seeing, and having God's Word abide in them, is that the result of their unbelief? Or does their unbelief result because they have not seen, heard, and had God's Word abiding in them? Which one is it? I won't ask for a vote. I want you to think on it for just a moment. Your moment's up. I am content to say that it is both. It is both. Listen, why is it that men do not believe? It's not a lack of evidence. Why is it that they do not believe? It is because they have ears to hear, but they cannot hear. They have eyes to see, but they cannot see. And their hearts are hardened and darkened and devoid of God's truth. It is also true that because they do not have eyes to see, ears to hear, and their hearts are darkened and devoid of God's truth, that it results in unbelief. Man is unbelieving, and so he is in that condition. And being in that condition, he thus is unbelieving. It is a horrible cycle. It's a horrible cycle that only the grace of God in Christ can break us out of. That is why salvation must be something from outside of us. Because our hearts are darkened. Because we do not believe, because man does not believe, he is cut off from the life of God. And being cut off from the life of God, listen, sinful man is both unable and unwilling to believe. And he is condemned because he is unable and unwilling to believe. Some work of grace has to happen to make us both willing and able to obey and to believe. Now before you get too self-righteous over the Pharisees and begin to say to yourself, boy, I'm glad that I'm not like those wicked, unrighteous Pharisees, I just want to remind you of Titus chapter 3, verse 3, where Paul writes, We also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. You were just like those Pharisees, weren't you? I was just like those Pharisees. Unbelief and cu- unbelieving and cut off from the life of God. Because I did not believe, I was estranged from the life of God, and my estrangement from the life of God hardened me in unbelief until the Spirit of God comes in and delivers us from it. From it. You and I were once just like the Pharisees. So they had received the revelation of the Father, the witness of the Father, and what did they do with it? They had rejected it. And what is the greatest, the penultimate, the best, the climax of all of God's testimony concerning His Son? Where do we find it? We find it in the Scriptures. And we're going to find out next week that they treated the Scriptures just like they did the Father, just like they did the miracles, and just like they did John the Baptist. Having received all of that light, they remained hardened in their unbelief. Listen, unbelief is never due to a lack of evidence. It is due to a what? Love for darkness. Unbelief is never due to a lack of evidence. It is always due to a love for darkness. Let's pray together.
Our Father, we thank You that though we were in sin, estranged from the life of God, aliens to the covenants of promise, strangers from Your throne of grace, we were far off, but we have been brought near by the blood of Your Son. We thank You that You have done a work in our hearts to cleanse us of our sin, to forgive us of our sin, to give us righteousness, to give us, to grant us repentance, which is a gift, and faith, which is a gift, and that You have so sovereignly moved to bring us to Yourself. Thank You that You have called us. Thank You that You have overcome our unwillingness to believe, our hatred for You, and our enmity for You. Thank You that by Your grace You have overcome all of that and brought us near in Your Son. What a precious Savior He is. We thank You for the truth of Your Word and what we can learn from it. Encourage and solidify our hearts in these things, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.